Hello, and welcome to the podcast. We are sitting here at uh, the latter half of the summer, and we are watching as the markets seem to be recovering, both on the M&A side as we're seeing deal activity come back, especially in the healthcare and tech world, as uh, some of our PE Hub reporters know. And also, fundraising has remained strong throughout this whole uh, pandemic downturn. And so things are looking a bit hopeful here in private equity land. And we're here to talk about some of that and some of the interesting uh, trends that we're seeing. This is Chris Wachowski. I write the daily PE Hub Wire and I am the editor of Buyouts. And I'm here with Sarah Pringle. She is the editor of PE Hub. And also Karishma Vanjani, who is a reporter with PE Hub. How you doing, Sarah? I'm doing pretty well. I've been very busy with a lot of activity going on. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting time in the market. And uh, Karishma, how are you? It's been good. I've been, like you said, hearing some news around tech and healthcare, M&A activity picking up. But yeah. And from your vantage, how do things look in the areas that you focus on, which are sort of like retail and also industrial and some other sectors? So very interestingly, uh, when I joined sometime in March, up until April, I would say, we saw a lot of retail and industrial deals. For some reason, flocking up, I would see every other day there was a retail deal or an industrial deal. And I think uh, from my reporting and from the stories that I wrote back then, it came out to be that most of those deals were sort of in the pipeline and they sort of closed during those early COVID months. And as we moved ahead, suddenly, you know, that sort of the flux of retail and industrial deals sort of died down. And I wasn't seeing much of that. And I think that's because, you know, the COVID hit and those deals sort of simmered down. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I want to get started here with Sarah. One interesting trend that we're seeing uh, all summer long here is the rise of SPACs. This is not something that uh, we we saw a lot of over the past few years. I mean, the, the sort of structure of the blank check company has been around for a long time, but sort of used sparingly. And in fact, if I can remember correctly, you know, maybe sort of had a certain stigma attached to it years ago where it might have just been a private investor that was unable to raise a traditional PE fund. And so the alternative was to raise a SPAC. Now, it seems like everybody's doing it, even if they have a fund. So what's going on? What are you seeing out there along these lines? Yeah, well, well, that's certainly right. I mean, every day, it seems like in the last couple of weeks, there's some sort of new announcement around a SPAC. I mean, one thing to point out is that there has been a steady increase of SPACs over the last couple of years but it's just dramatically accelerated over the last few months in this year. So it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. And like you said, I mean, people are always joking and and, and telling me that SPAC used to be a four letter swear word. I hear that it used to be the poorly run companies that would pursue a SPAC merger to IPO. Now we're seeing really well run companies pursue SPACs and we're just seeing a, a complete change in the dynamic and way in which they're pursuing these. Lots of reasons for that. So admittedly, I'm not an expert and I'm still trying to learn and keep up with all the activity, but it's on everyone's minds. Uh, everyone's bringing it up in every call and I'm pretty sure it's here to stay. You've seen some uh, SPACs specifically in healthcare. Actually, there's been more than a few in healthcare. And so you've covered a few of them. Can you talk about some of that uh, recent activity? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, most people will talk about DraftKings or Nikola, which are well known, of course, to the public. But there have been a a handful in healthcare and there will be more. One I just wrote about is a company called Cerevel. And 
That's an interesting one because it's a life sciences company. It was formed out of a partnership between Bain and Pfizer just a couple of years ago. And life sciences companies traditionally, what they do is they go through series A financing, series B, followed by a crossover investment, and then they're taken public. That's the, the typical MO. This time around, the crossover investment was essentially converted into a pipe investment through the SPAC merger. So what's happening is through the merger, they're effectively doing two transactions at one time. And that's important because we're in a time of uncertainty. That whole process of series A, B through the crossover can take up to 18 months. So this, just from an efficiency standpoint, creates a much quicker path to going public. At the same time, management has more certainty around the IPO pricing. There's no roadshow for investors. And there's also just different rules and regulations with, in terms of the filings in a traditional IPO versus a SPAC merger, which I'm still learning about. But essentially, my understanding is that in, in filing a SPAC merger, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of the amount of time you can spend with prospective investors, which is really important. And something that when I talked with Bain about the Cerevel deal was, was a really crucial factor in, in kind of determining the path they took. Another important factor they talked about is that these SPACs are no longer so-called blind pools of capital, which is I think kind of where the name blank check company came from. They're actually vehicles that are sponsored and include a number of very sector-specific investors, plus well-known anchor funds, mutual funds. So the target company, Cerevel in this case, is going in and they already kind of have a life science-tailored pool of investors from day one that spend all their time investing in that space. They probably know Bain Life Sciences you know, from other transactions in the past. And it's just a lot different than it was 15 years ago from that respect. Yeah, and I can recall hearing about SPAC opportunities well before the pandemic. And it was just sort of another avenue for investors to invest their money with big name individuals, either sort of in industry or from the private equity world or a combination of both. And so if I was sort of talking to limited partners about new funds or like first time funds and things like that, like I would often also hear, well, they're not raising a new fund, but you should check out this SPAC that, you know, this guy who's a well-known healthcare investor is launching. And so, yeah, that trend seems to have been growing for the past, say, two or three years. I agree with that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of what kind of impact it has on the whole market. In a way, you're kind of providing a whole new investor base access to these, in many cases, like for many years, private companies. So you might argue you're kind of leveling the playing field from that, that respect in terms of the private and public markets. Sarah, any other trends that you're watching this summer that are sort of being accelerated by uh, the pandemic? Anything else you're keeping a close eye on? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the other big one that comes to mind right now is just an acceleration of P firms selling partial stakes and in certain cases, creating 50-50 ownership transactions. 
And similarly to SPACs, this has been a trend you and I you know, have covered and written about in the past, but we're really seeing an acceleration of that as well. Lots of that in healthcare, lots of that in tech, lots of that in healthcare technology. So it's, it's an interesting to see you know, how many deals are happening like this. The largest healthcare technology deal this summer, a company called WellSky, which creates software for post-acute care healthcare market. TPG sold 50% to Leonard Green. That was a $3 billion plus deal. And like we've written about in the past, you know, I think it's just really done in an effort to, you know, continue to ride growth. And if you're in the middle of a downturn and you've got billions of capital to put to work, uh, it might just make more sense to reinvest in a company that you know really well and believe in and see more opportunity for than searching for another $3 billion company that is hard to come by. It's an interesting dynamic because when we were exploring this theme pre-COVID, part of the rationale was, well, in this high-priced environment, it might make more sense to reinvest in a company you know and helped grow rather than go out and find something completely new and even with your due diligence still somewhat uncertain, paying top dollar for the asset. You know, rather than do that, go find something that you already know and, you know, double down. And, you know, that was in a bull market environment when, when, <laughs> when we heard about that rationale. Now we're in a crisis environment and it's, st- it's the same rationale. I mean, I guess so. But as a side point to that, I mean, this deal I'm talking about scored a 20 times or I think it was about 20 times multiple, EBITDA multiple, ah, which okay. is at pre-crisis levels. So yeah. to be fair, you're seeing this for really, you know, sexy companies that are perhaps deemed even more valuable in the crisis because, you know, there's this, I guess, widening of the gap of quality and those that are of less quality and their scarcity value is maybe more appealing. I'll add something from my perspective, and it's on this idea of longer term holds, which is a theme that kind of permeates through sort of all sides of our coverage, whether it's M&A or fundraising or secondaries. And from my perspective, covering secondaries, there is expectation that hold periods are going to extend in this market, that exits are going to be harder to come by, that exits are going to be pushed out. And so GPs are going to be looking for options for assets, you know, especially ones that are nearing that age when private equity may, may want to exit, you know, the, beyond the three to five year window. And so there is an expectation from sources and people I talk to that this fall into to the end of the year is going to be a crazy busy period of time for the secondary market, leading with so-called GP-led deals, which have to do with pulling assets out of older funds and into newly created vehicles, giving the GP more time to manage them, and also giving investors in the older funds the option to cash out. The uh, feeling is that the, the pandemic has accelerated demand for that kind of optionality. That kind of offering had already been on the rise for many years prior to the pandemic. And now it's almost like this is like the perfect piece of technology to help a private equity firm deal with that. So, you know, this theme that that we uh, started exploring earlier in the year is, you know, still seems to be on, on the front burner, you know, long holds. What are some firms that are that are known for secondaries? Have you seen 
certain firms do a lot of this or is it kind of all over the place? Well, it, it depends. Uh, Secondaries has, uh, become mainstream. So in the sense that like blue chip firms have completed secondary deals in the past few years, including like Carlisle and Blackstone and Hellman and Friedman did a, uh, what's called a single asset process, which is a secondary that only focuses on one company in an older fund. And so the expectation is that most GPs will have explored this, if not, you know, have transacted on something already. And that's only going to continue. And it's, it's sort of this paradigm shift where, you know, private equity has always been illiquid, 10-year lockup, investor, you won't see your money, you know, for 10 years. So give it to us, forget about it. And then when you get it back, we'll, we'll have at least doubled it for you. Nowadays, it seems like private equity is, you know, almost has an expectation of this sort of built-in liquidity mechanisms that investors are kind of demanding, And so we are hearing about a lot of potential deals across sectors, including in healthcare. You know, there seems to be a good amount of (laughs) GPs uh, with healthcare assets that are thinking about uh, finding ways to extend their their hold periods over that as well. So I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff coming through now and especially after Labor Day. Now that we're talking about portfolio companies and things like that, another interesting trend that that we observed and that we tracked, and specifically Karishma tracked this summer and in the pandemic, has been portfolio companies that have managed to shift their operations in some way to sort of deal with the pandemic or help in the pandemic fighter contribute in some way. So... Karishma, if you could talk about that a bit, what are some things that you have found in your reporting? Definitely. So we all know that there are companies out there who sort of, you know, started selling masks and sanitizers in addition to what they were doing. But I sort of looked deeply into payback companies, payback portfolio companies and what they did. And we made a database of over 50 companies. And yeah, and, and the over 50 companies have about 27 the 30 private equity firms and all of them in some way or the other have completely pivoted operations like you said it wasn't a simple oh now we are selling sanitizers but it was you know we were going through a downturn and now we've you know emerged from that or you know we did this to completely shift our focus to sort of you know survive this pandemic one way or the other so yeah there have been some really interesting companies that I've spoken to and you know written a few pieces on how they sort of managed to stay afloat or in some cases even thrive in this pandemic or continue to rather. Interesting. And I, and I want to talk a bit about some specific examples, but uh, just a question for you. Is this always sort of the result of the company being under distress because of the pandemic and then sort of finding a way to continue to operate and stay alive by shifting operations? Is, is that always kind of the motivation or is it varied? So not always. For some of them in the database, the downturn never really came for them. For example, we had a company in the database, which was a a mortuary provider. It used to provide equipment for like body bags to all these labs and everything. For them, the downturn really never came. For them, it was literally the healthcare systems got overwhelmed. So more and more sort of labs wanted more body bags, CDC compliant body bags from them. So their playbook changed, but in a way not to survive the downturn, but how to thrive in the downturn. Very interesting. Who would even know that a a PE portfolio company does that? (laughs) How'd you find them? (laughs) So interestingly, some of them was just, you know, we, we sort of sent out emails, Sarah and I both, we sent out emails saying that, you know, hey, what, we're 
you know making a whole big database of companies that have not just done charitable donations because there were a lot of them who just sort of you know went on a spree of donating to first line workers there were a lot of them who just started selling sanitizers when they were you know just making something else but we sort of put out a request out there saying that we need companies that have shifted operations and we sifted through all of the responses we got and made a database out of it but interestingly one of them was something that you sent me chris are we share that we just got an email based on your newsletter yeah could you talk i i found that one really interesting in in part because i am a big fan of taking road trips uh, rather than flying i don't i'm not a great flyer <laughs> so uh, that was right up my alley C- could you talk about that one a bit Yeah so Chris RV Share is one of the companies that comes as an example of a you know portfolio company backed by a P firm that sort of went through a major downturn and now is thriving so in March and April that's what the CEO tells me that the cancellations of RV bookings were at peak they saw a lot of cancellations that they had to deal with uh, because covid just hit people sort of cancel their vacation plans and that's the time they started something known as relief bookings that is giving out rvs to doctors and frontline workers and utility companies who sort of wanted their workers to stay away from their families or rather isolate but yeah that's that's when the company sort of hit a pause in their sales what phil tells me who's the partner at tritium was that the pre-firm gave them i think it was 13.5 million in the month of april when they realized that they need to get the company ready for the post pandemic times so or at least when customers start coming back and that's what happened and now they're seeing uh, a spike in sales because parks are open people want to sort of take these vacations where they are isolated from the rest of the world and are not exposing themselves to the virus but yeah that's one of the companies in our databases that sort of fits this criteria of portfolio companies that have Uh, completely shifted operations. Gotcha. And w- when you have been talking to firms and companies about these kinds of pivots, are you finding that it's generally sort of the firm coming in and kind of directing that shift or you know, is it coming from the company level or how how could you describe that? What's really interesting here is that, you know, there is a difference in way each of them are operating. So some of them are really hand in glove. whereas some companies are not so hand in glove with their PE partners and that's that's evident through the conversation for example with RV share it was evident that you know they were having meetings and they were sort of working out a plan b as to what's going to happen when covid hit i sort of understood and grasped as to how they went how their journey went about from the time covid hit to now and why they sort of needed that 13.5 million in equity from tritium and how they used that money ahead so it's it's really it varies from company to company and how they're working with their pe partners some of them are really hand in glove some of them are not so much gotcha good good point good point i'll just add uh, if you have any good uh, info send it on over we love scoops on my end any kind of secondary stuff or any drama going on at firms or fundraising stuff that's all great you can find my contacts each morning on pe hub wire or find us on the websites or on linkedin thank you so much for joining us today and look forward to uh, talking again see y'all later